This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello, welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right? This is season three, which we're recording during lockdown, and we hope the episodes provide some escapism during these challenging times. I'm Ali Jones, and we've got another great guest who will tell you about the pivotal moments in her career. We hope to inspire and entertain you. This week's guest is Francesca Cavallo. Francesca is an author, speaker, entrepreneur, and activist. She co-authored the best-selling book series, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, with Eleanor Favilli. She now runs Undercats, which is all about embracing diversity and gender equality. Thanks to technology, we managed to speak while Francesca was in Rome and I was in Oxford. So, listen, Francesca, uh, we're in lockdown. It's a really strange time, but uh, but you were in Rome and you decided to go there because you felt it was safer than the US. Yeah, I realised. Uh, I was in Los Angeles and I was... Uh, I, I had stocked up food and I was ready to be there for the entire lockdown period. But then they started talking about closing the borders and I have no family in the US. My entire family is in Europe. So I was scared that if anything happened, I I was on the other side of the world. So I decided to hop on one of the last flights from Los Angeles to Rome. And it was a pretty surreal experience, to be honest. But um I bet it was. Yeah, the the plane from Los Angeles to New York was uh, basically empty. Maybe we were like 20 people. Really? Yeah. And from New York to Rome, it was completely full. In New York, no one... We're talking about uh, like around the 21st of March. No one in New York uh, was respecting as a sa- what, the safe distance. So it was really scary in a way. And on the flight from uh, New York to Rome, instead we were forced to wear the face mask for the entire flight, which is a long flight. So it was, I don't know. Yeah. It, it was a, it sounded out of a sci-fi movie, but I'm happy I'm in Rome. Yeah. yeah. And now that you're in Rome, are you still in, lockdown's eased there, hasn't it now? Yeah, it has. We are in these, uh, what they call two-phase here is what they call it, phase two. And um, people are starting to go back to work. I went out for dinner for the first time after three months the other night, and it was uh, very nice. And it's really, um, it, it's really nice. <laughs> there is one aspect of it that is really nice because to see Rome without tourists, it's very, it's a very peculiar experience. I think it once in a lifetime. So now yeah. that people are starting to go out, but you can see the city center without all the thousands of people that populate the streets every day, normally on any given day in Rome, is, um, it, I mean, I 
Of course, it is bad for the economy and for all of the businesses that are suffering, but there is uh, also a beauty to it because you can see the city resting and uh, it's a very precious experience. It's like Oxford. We've, it's, we're a couple of miles from the city centre and you go down there and it's just so quiet and peaceful and you can hear the birds. It's, it's incredible. And, and, and also, um, a lot of people I've spoken to during lockdown have been more creative and, and you've used this time to, to start a new book which is, is well on its way to being funded. Uh, congratulations, um, Dr. Lee Wenliang. If, if anyone doesn't know about this, this is this um, Chinese doctor who very sadly died because of the pandemic, but he was the one that, that was trying to tell everyone about it. That's right? Yes, he was the first whistleblower of this pandemic. He was the first one to spread the news that, uh, that to, you know, to spread the news that there was a new coronavirus uh, going around in, in Wuhan Central Hospital because he wanted his colleagues to wear face masks and to protect themselves while, while they were curing the patients. And after uh, sending this uh, group message to his colleagues, he was visited by the police and they forced him to sign a letter where he accused himself of spreading false information. Unfortunately, Dr. Lee uh, died of COVID-19 on February the 7th, and his death sparked a lot of protests in China for freedom of speech. So he basically became a universal symbol of the importance of science and of freedom. And it was really a story you felt everyone should know about. And I, it's incredible. You've raised 40% of what you need to raise in three days. What's your secret? Is it, do you think it's because everyone agrees that you, this story needs to get out there? I think, um, of course, the timeliness uh, as, um, is a crucial component of this. And, um, and this also mattered when, we, uh, when, when, when I first launched uh, Rebel Girls. Uh, because, of course, in 2016, there were the presidential elections. Uh, there was Hillary Clinton campaigning against Donald Trump. It was, uh, you know, the, the Me Too movement was about to get started. So a lot of people were talking about female empowerment. So the timeliness of this box uh, is, I think, a crucial component of the success on, on Kickstarter. And also, I believe in terms of like in a, broad, in a broader uh, sense, it fills a gap in children's media because children's media tends to focus on evergreen themes. But there is a growing hunger from parents and children for content that allows kids to be included in the uh, public discourse of uh, around current issues, things that grown-ups are talking about, uh, big historic moments. And there is not a lot of content because traditional publishing takes a lot of time to put a book in, on the market. So it usually takes about a year. And so for uh, sometimes, you know, uh, of course, publishers have instant books, but they are not usually, they're not for kids. They are usually books about journalism, about, it's a very different kind of publishing. And instead, children's media doesn't tend to focus on current events. So I think that part of the success is also the fact that um, I am filling a gap by providing parents and children with content that they can use to discuss the issue at end. So when they overhear the news, for example, on TV, then they have something that they can use with their parents to um, comprehend what is happening. And I think parents find that incredibly valuable. 
It really is. I mean, it's thanks to you that my daughter, you know, a couple of months ago said, oh, talked about Malala. And I said, how do you know about Malala? She'd heard, she's got the audiobook of Rebel Girls. Mm. And, uh, and and actually, she said to me before I came and started to do this interview, she said, could you ask uh, whether you always wanted to be a rebel girl? Is that something that you've always, you know, from the very beginning, you've always felt, you know, I'm standing up for myself? Or was that not always the case? Oh, I was always a rebel girl. <laughs> <laughs> my Mash and I, to the dismay of my mother, they used to tell me that they had to pay double in, kinder, in kindergarten because the <laughs> teachers couldn't handle me. <laughs> so, so, so it's I nothing's guess, changed. Yeah. It's always, always been like that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has. <laughs> but did you find though that uh, at school, because my daughters do say the boys tend to, to put them down a bit and, you know, mm. they play football. No, you can't play football. And they're like, why not? Did, do you find that? that? Did you find that or, or not? Yeah, I I definitely found that. I was lucky because I grew up in a family where uh, I had my sister and then we were seven cousins. We were all girls and we all had the same age. So we usually played together. So I didn't get, I, I, I kind of was protected by my family. And, um, and the other thing was that I was always a very good in school. So I, I, I think that in many ways, while you are in school, um, you're kind of um, shielded from, from, from sexism a little bit. Also, I didn't have sports because I grew up in a small town in southern Italy. There wasn't budget for sports. So sports is usually where more discrimination happens uh, when you are a child. While I was in school, I was always the top of, at the top of my class. So I didn't feel much of this uh, put down. Um, but, and you know, um, I think that I started to experience that when, um, when I started, when I went to the Academy of Dramatic Art. So I was in my 20s and I was studying stage directing. And we were just six directors, three, uh, three boys and three girls. And I could feel how the school was treating male directors in a completely different way from female directors. They were giving them bigger budgets. They were giving them bigger theaters for their um, school plays. So that was the moment for me where I started to realize that there was something off. And, and did that make you... I suggest, I wonder if that made you cross or did you, did it make you feel that you couldn't succeed? It definitely made me feel cross. Uh, It made me feel angry. And at the very beginning, I couldn't quite connect that experience to sexism because no one had ever told me. I wasn't equipped. I, I didn't know that sometimes women got treated differently because they were women. I grew up in this culture. So there were a lot of things that I took for granted. And to be honest, if you had asked me when I was uh, in my 20s, uh, in my early 20s, if I was a feminist, I could, uh, I, I think I would have said no, because I had a lot of prejudice against feminists and feminism. I, um, I thought it didn't have anything to do with me. Uh, and, and it was only later that I started connecting the dots. So I... Um, uh, I had these experiences in the Academy of Dramatic Art, and then I started to do something completely different. I started doing this uh, tech startup, I, uh, Timbuktu, uh, and I moved to Silicon Valley, which is the land of meritocracy, uh, and, or, or at least so I thought. 
And I started seeing patterns. I started seeing that my experience in the school, in the Academy of Dramatic Art was not um, the, the only experience where I saw my male counterparts getting bigger budgets, getting bigger opportunities. And I was like, but I don't, I don't feel I am, my, my project is less valuable than theirs. So what is happening here? And what happened, my, like the breakthrough moment, was, it, it was two-folded on the one side. And it, was, it all happened in Miami, funny enough. <laughs> I was in Miami and I was uh, there because I was at a, a conference that is called Kids Screen. That is one of the most important conferences of animation for children. And I was there to present two projects for two um, uh, TV shows for kids that I had been uh, writing. And uh, the, the keynote speaker that year was uh, Gina Davis, mm-hmm. the actress. She has this foundation that is called cjane.org, where that she basically uses to promote diversity in children's media, in media in general, but particularly in children's media. And there I was, by that point, I, I called myself a feminist, and there I was at this keynote, and she was talking about the importance of representation, and I, I agreed with every word that she spoke. And then I looked on my lap, and I, both of the projects that I was there to present had made protagonists. And that was a very big wake-up call for me because I was like, well, I call myself a feminist. I have started seeing on myself the impact on my life of, uh, self-internal, of internalized sexism. And I cannot bring myself to write a project with a female protagonist. What is wrong with me? And at the same time, um, we, Elena Favilli and I wrote a piece on The Guardian yeah. about our experience of, of sexism in Silicon Valley. And it was titled, Silicon Valley is more Flintstones than Jetsons when it comes to gender equality. And it was basically an account of our experience uh, of female entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. What was striking to me was the number of insults that the article received in the comment section, a lot of people were, incre- a lot of men were incredibly mad because we were telling our experience. So that was like, I, I was like, we, like, we got to do something about this because... So it fired, it fired you up, really, rather than, you know, putting, putting you down yeah. and thinking, why, why am I bothering? It, 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 it was brilliant, really, in a way, because it, it made you do something even, even more important. Yeah, because, you know, it made me see that someone was trying to draw bo- like borders around me, that they were telling me, you, you, you should not cross these borders. And being the rebel that I am, when someone tells me you should not cross this line, the first thing I want to do is to cross it and see what happens if I do. So this is what I, you know, this is what happened there. I was basically made aware all of a sudden of all of these lines that, that, that the patriarchal system was drawing around me. And when I started seeing those lines, I started becoming more and more hungry to cross them. I'm I'm really interested though how you were you were in stage work, stage directing, working in the theatre, 
And then this change to go to the, to the States and doing something completely different. I know it's all about communication, but was that just because you decided that you just wanted to do something completely different? Mm, it, it was, I'm, I've always been a very curious person. So I was in theatre, I realised that uh, I, I had created this very, very successful play that won a lot of awards and the and and I was contacted by a, an important theater in Milan for uh directing a new play and they offered me for the, the for directing the entire play they offered me 1000 euros so I realized that I was not going to be able to have a lifestyle the lifestyle I wanted by doing that that was a a moment where I was like, I love theater, I really do, but I don't think this is compatible. I've never been particularly uh, interested in money, but I, because I'm not interested in money, I've always had very clear in my mind that I wanted to live a life where I was not counting dimes because that would have made yeah. me feel anxious. I come from a very modest middle-class family. My father is a second-hand car dealer. Uh, my mom is a housewife. So I, you, you know, I, I just wanted to be as comfortable as I've always, as I had always been. And the realization came with theater that it was going to be very hard to have a life that I felt comfortable in by um, continuing in that line of work. So when, um, basically, when Elena um, started working on this project of an iPad magazine, I grew more, uh, more and more interested in that project. And um, I had been teaching theater to kids whose parents wanted them to become professional actors, which is one of the most challenging, ethically challenging things I've ever done. <laughs> Uh-huh. I can imagine. <laughs> because they were... <laughs> Do the children want to be actors? No, their parents wanted them to be. So they would come to me oh, and God. they were like, change my daughter, change my son. And I was like, well, I'm not here to change your son or daughter. If anything, I'm here to make them feel comfortable with what they are, who they are already. So I, I, I started like understanding that I was very interested in... Um, um, innovative ways to teach children and to expose them uh -huh. to the world in ways that were where you were treating them as peers where you were not having this sort of colonizing approach of a ch of a child's imagination so i wanted to bring this approach that i had been experimenting uh, in in the theater uh, on this uh, ipad magazine so I, I i i told elena why don't we make uh, uh, an ipad magazine for children and we and, and we started working on that and so it was my curiosity that really that led me to theater. And um, that was the only advice my mom gave me, ever gave me when I was choosing, uh, you know, what university I was going to. She always told me to follow my curiosity. And I, I usually do. I like to see where it leads. <laughs> and that's how I found myself in Silicon Valley. And I love the fact that you're always ahead, ahead of the curve. You know, an iPad news magazine for kids sort of before they became really popular. And it must have been so satisfying as well that you came up with the idea of, of Rebel Girls. And not only, you know, because 
it was very a male orientated area in Silicon Valley, but also it was hugely successful because it, it could have been a great idea, but it, it, it was getting it out there and, and getting the funding for it. I mean, could you have gone, I know you said with your, your, your book about uh, the doctor in China that because of time, it was great, it's great to do it in a crowdfunding way. Could you have done it the traditional way with Rebel Girls? Because that was less timely, I suppose. Well, yes and no, meaning that um, if the book hadn't been published in just a few months, um, remember, we started shipping the book when in the day after election night in the United States. That may, had a, played a huge role in the fact that the book became a symbol of resistance. So if we had done it with a traditional publisher, it would have been out one year from then. And I feel a little bit of momentum and a little bit of thunder would have been stolen from the project. So I think uh, the timeliness was, uh, was a, crucial, a crucial component. But uh, I, there were many things that couldn't have been possible with a traditional publisher because, for example, even just the idea of, making, uh, of asking 60 different artists to illustrate the book this would have been a nightmare, I think, for a traditional publisher because it, you know, they are scared of all of these contracts and then what happens. Um, we can make thing, things simpler. I mean, there are a lot of um, choices that, that, uh, were, um, that we made that were born out of the complete independence and, frankly, even of the complete ignorance of uh, what goes into a publication of a book because... Mm. There are a lot of things that you choose to do because you have no idea how complicated they are. And sometimes this can lead to tragedy, but some other times it can lead to greatness. So it's, um, you know, publishers, because they are so big and they, ha they have such hierarchical structures, they are built to minimize risk. And uh, to minimize risk, there are, of course, compromises because there are projects that they miss on and there are voices that get unheard because they, there is no track record on how a particular voice or a particular topic is done. And so they tend to be left aside. And instead, when you are willing to risk more, of course, the risk of a... You, you you have a lot of risk of not being able to complete the project or maybe not finding the right audience for it, but you also have the opportunity to create something that has never been done before and that redefines what, pub, what children's publishing is, which is what I always strive for. And, and you do strike me as a, a little bit of a risk taker. And when you've got an idea, you just want to run with it, which is, which is really refreshing. But also, do you think that because there were two of you doing it, that when you're in a team, you've got that confidence that somebody else says, yeah, yeah, let's just do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that is, this is why now, for example, that I launched this book by myself or like I, I wrote uh, a uh, Christmas novel for kids last year that became a bestseller in Italy and it will be out in the rest of the world this uh, Christmas. At the beginning, you know, after being in a creative duo for such a long time, at the beginning, it is a little bit scary because you're like... Mm. I, I, am, I am this person that um, I never feel ahead. I always feel behind. <laughs> so I'm a very anxious person. So whenever I, get, I, I, I have an idea, I already feel behind because I would like to see it already out in the world. <laughs> so this is, in a way, what um, gives me the possibility of being so fast 
when I work, when I write. But it's also scary because uh, in a way this was, uh, you know, uh, I had the feeling that by com- by being in, in a duo with a person that was a little more cautious, a little more, you know, um, uh, we kind of had that, that balance. But when you come out of that duo, you're like, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to crush repeatedly because of this urge that I feel? And I must say that it is scary for anyone. I don't know if uh, maybe some of the listeners have this experience too, because sometimes when you work with a person, then when you work by yourself, you have to sort of rediscover what your identity is and what your voice is. And sometimes I must confess that I sit um, by my desk and I'm like, okay, this is not my voice. So let's uh, clean, I, I meditate and I really try to sit with myself and to clean my mind from voices that aren't mine. Because when you start theorizing those voices um, that like, for example, you think, oh, what, what if I fail? What if this, well, what happens if you fail? It means that no one notices the work that you're doing. <laughs> but people only remember your successes. They don't remember your failures because they basically don't notice the work that you're doing. So whenever I think that, I it kind of it kind of gives me courage to try new things and to remember that for me at least, part of being an artist, part of being an activist is to through my life to show other fellow creators, to show people that you can be brave in your life, that you can aspire to more, that you can risk because you're not going to die even if you fail. You're just, it just means that you have to, you know, dust off your jacket and start again. That is such good advice. And it must make you so proud though when you see your books in, in bookshops and, and on the internet and, and you, you did the podcast with Rebel Girls as well and you've got, you know, really notable women like Melinda Gates and Jamila Jamil on board. That must make you so proud. Yeah, it's fantastic to hear, to know, frankly, the thing that really moves me is to know that the words I write are read by parents to their children. When I see, for example, recently I received this um, uh, little video of uh, this dad that was reading the Dr. Lee and the crown wearing virus to his son. And to know Mm -hmm. that my words are read throughout the world in so many languages to kids is something that really moves me. I, I can imagine. And, and after um, Rebel Girls, you, you launched Undercats, which is a great name. So this is embracing Thank diversity and, uh, and gender equality. But I don't think you ever saw yourself as an undercat or an underdog, or did you? Always. I, I do. I still do. <laughs> do you? Yeah, Despite absolutely. being a rebel girl, an, an, an underdog rebel girl, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I always feel, I don't know, um, I never feel I belong frankly. So this is what my connection with an under an underdog or an undercat. I always feel uh, out of place, frankly. I feel out of place in the world of publishing. I feel out of place in the world of startups. I feel out of place in the world of children's book authors. Um, but why, why is that though, when you've had so much success? Because I feel that I don't, like for example, I, um, I don't read the same things that many other children's book authors read. I don't um, know the things that many startup founders know. I know a little bit of so many different worlds. 
so that I feel that I don't really belong anywhere. I've always felt like um, in between, in between careers, mm. in between genders, in between nationalities. Uh, it's really kind of a biographical trait. Frankly, if I'm honest, in the U.S., I also feel in between races because I, I started realizing that in the U.S. I don't think I'm considered completely white, which is a, a new in-between for me because I've always, I, I'm white and mm. I'm, I've always considered myself white. But because of the curly hair and the, you know, my eyes... I start, you know, I, I've always felt sort of in these, um, I, I've always felt that people don't quite know where to put me. And so in that sense, I, I, I wanted to honor this feeling with the name of my, of my new company. I like the fact that you've done that, though. You've turned it around, something that maybe made you feel uncomfortable, but you're turning it into, into a really positive thing. And, and you must have also been inspired by the women that you researched in in rebel girls and there must have been women in there who also felt like an undercat or or an underdog i wonder if there's any particular story that really resonated with you if there is a little piece of me in each and every one of those stories but uh and in i'm i was particularly drawn to uh to, and, and it was also for me one of the criteria for the selection of women who were able to um, to redefine completely the idea of success. And um, for example, one of my favorite stories was the the story of um, of Katia Kraft, which is in volume two, and she is a volcanologist. And she had this very nerdy passion for volcanoes. And um, she met her husband uh, in, while they were in university. And they, if you look, one of the things that made me fall in love with their story was these two nerds that are madly in love with lava and volcanoes, which is an odd enough passion. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> And if you see their videos on YouTube, you see uh, these people that are walking in this uh, sort of spacesuit that look like uh, foil. <laughs> they really look like they're made of foil. So they, they look really weird moving uh, so close to these rivers of lava as if they were in a sort of a, in, a, in, a, in, an, in an animated TV show or something, they don't even look human. And, <laughs> and, and the way they, they, they connected and the way their love story developed uh, by these lava rivers really touched me for, because it, it is so, it, it's, it's so out of the realm of uh, probability. Yeah. Right. So these stories of people that don't care about the rest of the world, that don't care about normal, quote unquote, passions or these kind of stories where people are have uh, are brave enough to follow their curiosity, literally wherever it may lead, are really the stories that um that moved me and the kind of stories that I that I decided to include. Another one that I really love is the, um, the story of Julia Childs. 
the, the very famous chef. And of course, a lot of people know that she was a very, very famous chef, that he brought French, she brought a French cuisine in the United States. But not many people know that she started her career as, uh, uh, by cooking these cakes that were used uh, during Second World War to keep sharks mm. away from bombs <laughs> into, in the ocean to keep, <laughs> to keep sh- sharks away from setting off bombs that were aimed at Russian submarines. So that is so crazy. There's so many, that, there's so many levels to that. Oh, it's just crazy. Yeah, you're, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You saw, you, the thought was made up. Yeah. Right, because they, they, they had these problems that sharks were setting off bombs all the time. And she thought, well, why don't we create a cake with rotten shark meat and we put these cakes next to the bombs so the sharks won't get near them, which is, it worked, <laughs> right? So this, <laughs> this sort of um, um, shamelessness of coming up with an idea and trying it just for the sake, just for the thrill of it. This is something that I really share with many of the women that are featured yeah. in the book. Yeah, I, I could, I could see that. And I just think that story. You well, you couldn't make it up, could you? You really couldn't. Uh, and you know, a lot of these women, they've been, you know, they're they've been around a long time. You know, they're they're not all from the the twenty first century. So. I still can't quite understand why we are where we are at the moment. You know, in the UK, we've got a very male-dominated cabinet at the moment. A lot of people are saying, you know, would the decisions we've made at the moment with the pandemic have been the same if we'd had more women in the cabinet? I don't know. We've got You've got Trump in America. Do you think things are getting better? Absolutely. Things are getting better. Uh, the thing is that uh, we, cannot, um, we cannot stop fighting. Because the moment we stop fighting, oppression has many ways of recycling itself. And um, we are far away, so, so far away from equality. So we are much better off than we were even just 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But we need to keep fighting and we need to make sure that the new generations are better equipped than we were to read oppression and... Um, to 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 recognize it first of all and then to to get rid of it uh, in a much faster way than uh, than we are able to to do it now because one of the things that i am obsessed with is that i want to produce children's media that makes certain ideas obsolete from the get go because you know yeah the the thing that many people think is that uh, stories just influence behavior in in presence. What I mean is like, for example, you hear a story about, um, um, I don't know, a brave uh, girl, a brave brave girl doing something, and then the, 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 the girls will be inspired to do that in the future. And that is absolutely true. But one thing is also th- that people don't consider is that stories are so powerful that even the absence of stories has an impact on, the children, on children's imagination. For example, if we grow up and we never read about uh, gay characters or transgender characters in the children's books that surround us, we are going to grow up thinking that that is a taboo that there is something to be ashamed mm. of. So 
in having a more diverse representation of people in children's media is fundamental to, to raise new generations that are free of the shame that we grew up with. Do you think that if we went back to working in the theatre, because you talked about that, that uh, training and you felt like you were, well, an underdog again, I suppose, and there was inequality, do you think then it would be a lot better now than it was, say, when it was when you were there? I don't think so, frankly, particularly <laughs> in Italy. In Italy, the Me Too basically didn't happen. So the world, uh, right today, I wrote an email because uh, an, a female director was uh, nominated um, director of the Academy of Dramatic Art that I attended. And this is the first time that the Academy has a female director. So that's a great news. And the first thing that I did when I heard this news, she was my acting teacher when I was in school. And um, the first thing I did was I emailed her and I told her, we got to talk on the phone because I realized that so many things were wrong when I was in the Academy of Dramatic Art because the power dynamic between uh, um, a director and an actress was never explained to us, never was it explained to directors how they should not abuse the power that they have when they are directing an actress, how certain mm. behaviors are not acceptable, not appropriate. There was a, almost like, I, I, when I was in the Academy of Dramatic Art, there was a lot of, uh, and I know that still today it, it's the same, there is, there is still a lot of uh, glorifying of directors sleeping with actresses and, um, you know, even teachers in some cases. <laughs> so, there, oh, yeah. So it's, it's not much has changed no, really at all. But I hope that with this new director, and, you know, I, I do believe that with more women in positions of power, especially when these women are awoke, to, to what happens and in, in, when, when we look away, when we choose to look away. I think that a lot of change can, can be made. And I, I try whenever there are women in position of leadership to support them as much as I can to make it easier for them to fight. Because, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough job because you have to change a lot of systems that are in place and that, that, that have been there for a number of years. So it requires a lot of strength. And that is where sisterhood comes into, into play and where we need all the support we can get to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. And is that why you're a, ment a mentor? Because you're trying to you know, help other women who you know, are behind you, but uh, you know, you're trying to say, look, this is what's happened to me maybe in the past and we've got to try and change perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to speak about my experience um, as much as I can, because I think if, we can, if, I, if I had heard someone tell me these things, maybe I don't understand them when they are talking. I don't understand them just by listening. But when the same thing happens to me, I have, um, I have the possibility to read what is happening. And I have an alphabet to express my feelings and to express my understanding of the situation without thinking that I'm crazy. <laughs> and I love the fact that, you know, you're trying to educate children. It's, it's starting from such a young age and making sure that they they know what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And boys can read your books as well. It's not just girls, is it? Absolutely. A lot of boys really like the stories in the book because, you know, there is this misconception. Children don't, 
um, children are not naturally sexist or homophobic. It's us, it's the grown-ups that we teach them to be sexist and to be homophobic. So um, sometimes its parents were like, oh, this box reads for girls, so it can't be for boys. And I understand that. I, 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 you know, when I, um, a friend of mine who is um, a raving feminist had a daughter a few years ago. And so she was obsessed with this thing of like uh, using gender neutral clothes and all of that. And so when I, when I shopped for her, because I went to visit her after um, she had given birth to her daughter, I went to shop in the boys' aisle and I felt so cool that I was shopping for a girl, for a baby girl in the boys' aisle. Now, fast forward, uh, two years later, she had a boy. So same situation. And despite the fact that I'm a rebel, that I'm an undercut, whatever, that I'm a feminist, that I wrote good night stories for rebel girls, I could not bring, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I could not bring myself to shop for the boy in the girl's aisle. <laughs> so, which speaks volumes. Why do, you, why do you think that was? Because we, I, you know, the, some, somewhere inside me, there is still the thought that buying something girly for a boy is like diminishing his value, mm. which is, you know, it speaks volumes of how much sexism I have interiorized. And um, it, I, I, I really felt ashamed uh, of this. And um, did you tell her? I told her, I told her. And uh, I learned a lot about this from my sister who had a girl and then a boy. And uh, she is using the same clothes that she used for her daughter, also for my, um, for my nephew. And by seeing him wearing things with like sp sparkling t-shirts or pink stuff, or, you know, sometimes um, um, even skirts, because sometimes my, my sister uh, lets the bigger sister to dress <laughs> the older, the, the, the younger brother. So by seeing this every day, and through the example of my sister, who is a, an, a, an incredible mom, I am, you know, coming to terms with this and I, now I feel more comfortable. But uh, you have to be very honest with yourself and you have to look deep inside to understand what kind of prejudice you have interiorized so that you can stop passing this on to your kids. Well, I, I've got identical girl twins and when they were born, I just didn't have enough baby grows. So one was in, I don't know, I think I had a pink one and the other one was in her brother, older brother's one. So I don't think I thought about it. It was just a case of I hadn't got enough clothes. <laughs> what, what advice um, do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that you, you call yourself a feminist leader, an entrepreneur, an author, mm. a speaker. Do you think you're, you're more one than another? That's an excellent question. Well, I feel a writer above anything else because one of the things that moves me the most about writing is that by writing words, you can make things happen. They're like spells and it's not just books. So when I think of myself as a writer, I'm not just referring to books because I when I write emails, when I write a Facebook post, when I write on Instagram, you know, we, we write a number, when we write projects, uh, 
um, when we write the description of some, when something comes out of our mind and starts living on a page, that is the first step to make it become reality. And that, so when I think of myself as a writer, I almost um, compare that to being a magician. Mm-hmm. So the more effective your, my writing is, the more change I can produce in the world. So that is how I think about writing. And uh, that is why I feel um, that if I had to choose one word to describe myself, writer would be the one that I would go with. So if we were to look back about where you are, well, look at the way you are now and look back to the pivotal moments of how things change for you. I, I mean, talking about the, the sexism in, in the theatre, that, that was a big moment for you. And moving to the States and, and experiencing the attitudes in Silicon Valley, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was, a, you know, it, it, I, it was the accumulation of all of these tiny moments, all, all of these tiny realization of all of these thoughts. So one of the things that I always say is that the only merit that I, um, that I give myself is that I am a person that keeps showing up. Even when I don't know what I'm doing, there are moments, especially when you are working by yourself, that you are not really sure what you're doing. You're not really sure what direction you're going in. And you're like, I don't know what, what I'm doing. I don't know what I should do today. When you are your own boss, it's not always easy to understand what to do on a daily basis, right? How to spend your time. And you, you have to be okay with that. And you have to know that that is part of the process. But I kept showing up every morning at eight. I was at my desk and I was starting working. Every day I tried to do my best to understand what was asked of me. And I tried to do it at the best of my abilities. Of course, sometimes what you do um, meets the imagination of a huge number of people, as it happened with Good Night Stories for Apple Girls, and you're lucky to see that your work speaks to so many people. Some other times you're writing an email and that email is maybe helping just one single person. But the accumulation of that work uh, is really what matters in defining a career. So that is, you know, there, each moment is pivotal in the way I, I, I look at, at, at my career and the way I, I look at the work I do. I live every moment as if it were pivotal. And I try to be, to be in this uh, open dialogue with myself. And I try mm-hmm. to understand what can I do to make this better? What can I do to grow into a better person every day? These are the questions that I live with. I think that's great advice as well. Just show up every day and, and be, be diligent. And even if you're not sure how your day's going to go, just be prepared to work hard. I think that's excellent advice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what next for you? Because, I mean, the book then, the book about the, the doctor, is, it looks like it's, it's all going really well. And, and what, what have you got planned? I'm sure that the rebel girl stroke undercat has got a lot going on. <laughs> so my goal with undercats is to... Um, put in the world media, children's media that has a huge potential for for cross-media productions. So I I tend to work on stories that I see could work well as movies or TV 
or uh, podcasts. So I, I, I want to, to build stories that can um, work on a variety of media because I would really like with Undercats to, to experience other worlds besides the world of publishing. I would like to work on a TV production. I would like to work on a movie. So I'm trying to build a portfolio of content that can live on a variety of media. And uh, family-oriented, family content, family entertainment, and uh, in general, family entertainment, whether fiction or non-fiction, that has a very strong correlation with themes that we are talking about in our society right now. So not so much evergreen themes, um, but um, I don't know, for example, uh, my Christmas um, novel, uh, which is called Elves on the Fifth Floor, is about this homosexual family that has to leave their country a few days before Christmas because a newly elected president declared homosexual families illegal and they move to this new city a few days before Christmas. So the, this is where you, the Christmas miracle starts on the back of this, um, of this situation that is very connected to um, you know, the, the, the situation about LGBT rights uh, in many countries of the world. Or, for example, Dr. Lee and the crown-wearing virus is, of course, linked to the crisis of coronavirus, but it's also linked to the, uh, the theme of the freedom of speech. You know, we saw that the um, CNN reporter handcuffed on live TV today. So the theme of Dr. Lee and the crown-wearing virus is uh, not just relevant in China, but it's becoming increasingly rele relevant in many countries of the world, including the United States. So I try to tackle themes that can give kids access to the public discourse, and I try to do it in a way that um, uh, can, you know, that, so that it can live in, in other, on other platforms. So that is the plan with, with, uh, with Undercats right now. Well, I can't wait to see what, what's coming up and, and sharing it with my children as well. And, and I, are you going to be staying in, in Italy for the foreseeable future or you, will, you, will you be drawn back to the States eventually when this is all over? Um, I, well, I, this is a very hard question. I, I'll be for sure in Italy uh, through the end of the summer because I am uh, anxiously waiting to see my niece and my nephew. Um, but I don't know what, what's going to happen like in September. Um, and I, 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 I'm trying to play it by year because yeah. there's not a lot we, we can plan. Are. Yeah, there's yes. not a lot you can plan in this situation. You're absolutely right. I think we have to take each, each week as it comes. But it, it's so... Yeah. Great to hear all the all the work you've done so far, and it's it's inspiring to hear your passion for what you do. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me today, Francesca. Thank you very much, and uh, if you can go on Kickstarter and check out yes. Dr. Lee and the Crown Wearing Virus. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you to Francesca for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, she's on Twitter at Francis Cavallo and we're on at Where Go Right. We have other authors on previous episodes of the podcast. Check out Claire McIntosh, Suzanne Heathcote, Joe Cottrell, Katie Baxendale, Tarek Jordan, Hilary Robinson and there's also actors, artists, bloggers, TV presenters. They're all there waiting for you. We're on Podbean, iTunes and Spotify. Please, if you can, subscribe and rate us. Thank you to Megan for production brilliance and also burning the candle at both ends. Uh, Laura Shipsey for the music and we'll see you next week.
This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right?